Let's pray. Father, there is no one else in the sense that you are God. Your glory is supreme. Uh, Father, would you be glorified by the words I speak, not because I am with you as God by any means, though I sure don't want to look silly up here, but Father, because you are good and you are worth all praise, and um, we want to learn more about who you are. Father, would you help my words here to be um, useful to that end? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes for the common good, it's important that we share a little something about ourselves that maybe nobody else would know. I'm going to share a little something about myself and my dad today. Um, First of all, some things about my dad. My dad's very, very strong. Maybe there's bias, but I think it's true. Anyway, very strong. He loves me very much. He'd never let anything bad happen to me. Um, If he could at all prevent it, nothing would happen to me. Um, And my dad is a bit interesting. Can you put my picture up, please, Ryan or Robert, whoever? (laughs) That is my dad, and that is me. That was, yes, the 1970s, so it's a little fuzzy. Let me help you if you can't make out the expression. It's something like this. I was excited up there. Uh, My dad loves babies. Uh, So this was us when we'd walk anywhere. That's how we did it. My dad did that with many of my siblings. And since I'm the oldest of 11, I got to see it firsthand. He did this with stranger babies, too, as much as he'd pick up that child if he could. And he would try to to do that. And um, so I got to see a lot of babies react as, as my dad would reach out to them. Most weren't as good as me, I'll tell you that right now. This is, this, is, this is how they usually reacted. Um, one, like me, they would completely give in to my dad's plan. And there they would be, proudest punch up there, seven feet in the air. Uh, two, they would let my dad hold them, but they'd be a little nervous, not quite sure if they should let my dad do things his way or try it their own way. Um, they'd kind of get about this high up, and then they'd kind of <laughs> look for some firm footing, and they'd sort of topple. My dad, of course, would still be standing. He'd always catch them, but uh, they didn't, it didn't quite work out as good as that. And, uh, or number three, they'd flat out refuse. Who is this weirdo? What does he have in store? I don't quite know what I have to do with his shenanigans. Um, you can turn the, the picture off, guys. Thank you for, for putting that up there. Do you ever feel a little bit like that in life? There's a lot going on here that I don't understand. And just what is my role here? I know this is God's world. I know this is God's kingdom. What's my role in the kingdom of God? Why am I here? What am I doing? We're going to look at the book of Haggai today. I think observing God's messages through his prophet Haggai We'll offer some explanation as to our role in the kingdom of God. Go ahead and turn there. I'll be honest with you, I usually flip past it. It's a pretty small book, so if you're using an actual Bible, if I were you, I'd have my phone. That's a pretty quick way to go. Um, But anyway, it's just before Matthew, if you're flipping there. While you're turning, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. We can find some background to the book of Haggai in the book of Ezra. Um, We know that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, they had been in a covenant agreement with God, a contract, you might say, an agreement that we will follow God. We will obey these rules, these laws, 
If we obey them, there will be blessing. If we disobey them, there will be curses. God was very clear with them. You worship idols, this is what will happen to you. Uh, the, the Israelites had worshiped idols, and so they had been sentenced, as per their agreement, they had been sentenced to 70 years in captivity. The Babylonians had taken over. They had um, taken the Israelites from their homes, and um, there the Israelites were, far from home, for 70 years. Let's see if I can help set the stage a little clearer. Um, how many of you are, you are maybe a second generation, third generation, fourth generation United States citizen? I don't think, is there anybody, is it, I'm, I'm a third or fourth generation, anybody that far back? No, maybe, yeah, most of us have been in the United States a long time. This is a very calm place, relatively speaking, when you think about the world and think about history. We've, we've had the same kind of rule. We can kind of come and go within our borders as we please. I don't think it's very easy for us to see um, how readily available our own comfortable culture is to us. So let's kind of see if we can get into the Israelite shoes a little bit. What if tonight North Korea took over? And tomorrow, we had to be forced from our homes. We have to go to North Korea. Uh, put it, make it a little more concrete. Imagine a cold little hut there. You wake up the next day. You, you start forced labor. This is not something you want to do. This is not an eight to five, two paid 15 minute breaks and a half hour lunch. No, this is as long as they want you to work, whatever they want you to do, any complaining, any deviance from their, their rule, in, you're in the prison. And I don't think North Korea has nice prisons. I don't know exactly what it was like in the days of Babylon taking over um, Israel, but I don't think it was a pretty picture. Imagine that. That would stink. You'd be away from anything familiar. One day would be awful. A week would be terrible. I would think a month would be hopeless, a year, an eternity, and 70 years is a lifetime. I'd be dead. You all might be very, very old. That's where we find the Israelites. When we pick up in Haggai, almost, except one thing. This is pretty amazing. So let's say all of that were true. Let's say we were over there in North Korea, stuck, <laughs> stuck under this horrible regime. 70 years have gone by, and I don't know who would succeed Kim Jong-un, I don't know, some North Korean guy, and somebody would take over North Korea, and the new ruler would say something like, oh, God's given me all I need. I want you all. Go ahead, go back home to the United States. Make a, make a place there. Build your churches, be Christians, live your lives. Go ahead, go. Can you imagine? That's kind of what happened to the Israelites. They had been stuck over there, captive. The, um, the new king, king of Persia, who <laughs> he, was, he was now um, in charge of the land, he had said, go ahead, I, the Lord has given me plenty. I believe we need to build the temple. Israelites, go home to Jerusalem, build the temple. So the Israelites did, they went there. Pretty exciting, miraculous. There they were doing God's work. But the people around them were aggressive. They opposed the Israelites. They even went to the king. They circumvented the authority the Israelites had, and they shut them down legally. So a few months after the Israelites started their work, they stopped. For 16 years, they were not working on the temple, yet they were in Jerusalem. 
And that is where we start the book of Haggai. This is God speaking through his prophet Haggai to the people of Israel after they have been back in Jerusalem for 16 years. Think about it for a minute. If God's people were on God's mission, asked, they were asked to do a very clear thing for God, and yet they didn't have the heart to do it. What was their role in the kingdom of God? On the other hand, when I think about the Israelites in that boat, I really can relate to them. It would be hard to be, I mean, it's incomprehensible to me to be in captivity for any amount of time, let alone 70 years. I can't imagine trying to build a temple, and I can't imagine after spending my life in servitude to an enemy, coming back and thinking about maybe making waves with that king again. You better believe I'd want to stay out of prison. I'd want to keep him happy. I can relate to the Israelites. Why? I'm very much like them. I don't know what their role in the kingdom of God was as people who couldn't couldn't have the, didn't have the heart to keep a simple command of God, clearly God's mission. God had done miraculous things. They didn't have the heart. I'm just like that. What's my role in the kingdom of God? Let's take a look at Haggai. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be built. Here we see God speaking to the children of Israel, and he's, he's having them consider their ways. Let's take a look at where you are right now. The first thing that God says to them is, you're making excuses, people, to justify your actions. I told you to build a temple. Well, sure, the king said no. The people around you said no. You yourself said no, but I never told you to quit building. You're, using, you're making excuses to disobey something I clearly told you to do. Look down at verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, this temple, lies desolate? The Israelites, they weren't, they weren't in uh, Jerusalem. Well, perhaps some of the time they were cowering in fear, but some of the time not. They were making a home for themselves, not just any house. Those of you in applied Bible study methods know this. This was a nice house, paneled houses. They were getting comfortable in the land. The people had been focusing on their own lives, not God's command. They were self-centered, not God-centered. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Here God's explaining to the people that their situation is clearly the result of their sinful actions. If you want to, you can keep your fingers in Haggai. You can look at um, Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 through 40. Uh, this is early on when the people of Israel had entered into the covenant with God, this almost contractual agreement, you might think of it, and God's laying out the terms, if you disobey, here's what it's going to be like for you. Deuteronomy 28:38. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. 
You'll plant and cultivate vineyards, but you'll neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall devour them. You'll have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourselves with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. It's just what God said. Exactly what he said would happen did. That sounds a lot like what happened to the children of Israel when they got into captivity to begin with. And here they are again. God is reminding them, here's what I said about if you disobeyed, it will happen like this. And so it did. The people were not able to see their consequences of their sin clearly, even though God had spelled it out for them. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He was the leader of the people. He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They went back to their work, but even this work was by the Lord's stirring. If God's people made excuses to disobey, if God's people lived self-centered lives, if they were unable to see the consequences of their sins, if they couldn't keep track of God's command, what was their role in the kingdom of God? And if God's people, when they actually did obey God, it wasn't even by their own strength, what was their role in the kingdom of God? And yet, when I think about them, I really relate. In fact, I feel sorry for them. If I had been in captivity for 70 years, I like to think I'd be God-centered, but you better believe I'd be self-centered too. I'd be making a comfortable home. Not that there's anything wrong with a comfortable home, but there is if I'm forgetting the things God told me to do. I can be very self-centered, not God-centered. Uh, what about the consequences of my sin? How often is that unclear to me? I do something wrong, bad things happen, and I want to kind of explain it away or ignore the things, the wake I've left because I was rude or because I was lazy or you name it. How often do I forget, maybe willfully, maybe accidentally, uh, the things that God made clear for me to do? And I can't see with my eyes that my good actions are actually from God's strength. I can't see that physically, but I'll tell you one thing that I can see pretty clearly. When I do try to do good things, my results are spotty at best. <laughs> so if I'm like God's people, if I make excuses to disobey, if I live a self-centered life, if I can't really see the consequences of my sin, if I can't keep track of God's commands and I can't really even obey him on my own strength, what's my role in the kingdom of God? That was one message that God spoke to his people through the prophet Haggai. We're coming to a second message that he gave his people. Again, let's talk about a little background. This comes from Ezra again. The people were able to complete the temple of God. Ezra tells us that this was an exciting time. They, and it was. I mean, they had done what the Lord said. It had been a long time. They had come out of captivity. They're in a new land. There was much opposition. They had to rally their strength and get back on task. And they were so excited, they shouted for joy. But Ezra 3 also tells us that... Those pe there were some people there that had been alive since before the captivity. 
That meant they saw the temple that had been destroyed, the one that Solomon built. That meant they remembered that when that temple was built, the Shekinah glory of the Lord entered and there was a cloud in the temple. God sent fire into the altar. It was a magnificent time. The building was glorious and people that had seen that were so disappointed in the new temple that had been built. They wept and wailed so loudly, the Bible says it was indistinguishable to make out whether the people were crying out of disappointment or shouting in triumph. That gives us a little depth then as we look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Who's left among you who saw the temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? God's people made heroic efforts to build the temple of God. They came out of, well, captivity. They relocated. They built a building, which I can't comprehend. I'm not a builder in any way, shape, or form. They overcame legal adversity and opponents from every side. They had to listen to the correction of God, observe their discipline, turn their ways, and go do the right thing. They made heroic efforts to build this temple. Yet, if in all that striving, the product was a bit disappointing, what was their role in the kingdom of God? Have you been there? Have you gone to work and maybe your efforts were a little lame at best? Or have you uh, worked really hard on homework and mm, C plus? Or maybe in a relationship, you tried, but you tried hard, but it didn't really go as you planned or you thought. If my heroic efforts are disappointing, what's my role in the kingdom of God? <sighs> Are you getting a sense of futility? Are you feeling discouraged, kind of like you don't belong, like you're not worthy? Are you feeling a little silly, lame, or inferior when you think about kind of how these people tried? They gave it their best, but it clearly wasn't enough. God turns things around next. He says some things that don't make sense to that mindset. I think that mindset makes sense when we read about the children of Israel and we hear about their efforts. When I think about myself and my efforts, that mindset makes sense. But then God's words don't make a whole lot of sense to that. Chapter 2, verse 4, the next thing God says through his prophet, he says, But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. How does that make sense? God will provide some answers to this coming up in the next verses. Let's read um, starting with verse 6. Oh, I'm sorry, starting with verse 5. As for the promise, this is God still speaking through his prophet. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, that's clear back at the beginning when God began his covenant closer to the beginning of when he began his covenant with his people. Clear back from that time, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
God was going to fill his temple with glory. And this was not just from the building of the temple, the thing made with human hands, though, yes, God did bring glory to that temple. His temple, his project, you could call it, was completed in the eyes of all the nations around them. God showed he would do through his people what he set out to do. And because the temple was built, that meant the people could go worship him as was prescribed. They could take their offerings to the altar. They could observe the festivals as they were meant to do. Yes, God was glorified in that. But it tells us there in Haggai that glory is not as much glory as it will be in the future. Um, If you like, you can turn here. You don't have to. It's just a quick reference. But we see that very same temple, though it gets a bit of a facelift, that very same building. Oh, I didn't mark it. I'll have to fumble. Well, you do have time to turn there if you like. Luke 2, here we go. Luke 2, 32, we're told in that temple a greater glory comes. Many years later, the promised Messiah entered that very same building, and here's what is said of him. Here's what is said of Jesus. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. A greater glory had entered that temple in the person of Jesus. God himself brought greater greater glory there. But let's review or maybe investigate a little closer into Haggai 2, 6 through 9, and see if we can discern a greater glory to come. In verse 6, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. When will such a cataclysmic event that would be so great as to shake the sky and the earth and the seas, something that will bring the greatest glory ever, something that will leave complete peace. When will that happen? I believe Hebrews 12 gives gives us a good look at this. You can turn in your Bibles, if you like, to Hebrews 12. We'll camp there for the rest of our time. The author here is contrasting that old covenant, that agreement, that God had made with his children of Israel, that the people were living under from the, t- the Israelites, that is, from the time of Egypt and, and um, up until the time of the people that Haggai was talking to, until the time that Jesus came. The author of Hebrews is comparing that covenant with the one that Jesus brought. And here's what he says in Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come from that, that old covenant, the days with that old temple that Zerubbabel and those people built, you have come from that covenant to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. This kind of kingdom (laughs) transcends any kind of action or effort done with human hands. A human stone kind of temple is far outweighed by this kingdom that we're hearing about in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel, Jesus is the mediator bringing this new covenant. And let's not pass quickly over 
uh, what that means to be the mediator of a new covenant. Another way of saying that might be advocate or person who negotiates agreement. How did Jesus negotiate that agreement? The cost of his life with his own blood, and he made it powerful by his resurrection into life. Jesus negotiated that new covenant for us. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What is our role in the kingdom of God? That's alluded to here. We'll get more We'll get back on that a little more later. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, kind of like what happened in the days of Haggai, there's a prophet on earth who warned his people. Those people didn't get away with disobeying. How much more when we're being warned from heaven? You, they, um, they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turned away from him who warns from heaven. And when his voice, or and his voice shook the earth then, days of the prophets, days like that, his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. That's a direct quote of Haggai. He took that little piece, and, he, and um, God is using it here. He's explaining it to us. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of things which can be shaken as I've created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken must remain. Think about this. I don't like to say this is true because I like to tell myself I live in a very pristine environment and that I myself am quite pristine, but I'm not. So think of this. Have you ever um, noticed your keyboard is really disgusting and you have to turn it over and shake out those crumbs so that the only thing that remains was what was meant to stay on the keyboard, those little letter keys? <laughs> Imagine the God of the universe, taking everything in creation and turning it upside down and shaking out everything that he does not intend to be eternal. Sin, darkness, death, disobedience. Shaking that out. Look at verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom... This is a kingdom, not like a volleyball tryout. You make a good serve and you're in. This is a kingdom that's not ours. This is a kingdom we can't get into because we've done something to merit the favor of getting in. This is God's kingdom. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. This is God's kingdom. Look at verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. What is our role in the kingdom of God? Well, think about this for a little bit with me. I was excited to dwell on this over the last few days. When the Israelites rebuilt the temple, a significant part of that was the altar and the fire that burnt sacrifices. And God said, he is the fire, the consuming fire. What is the sacrifice? What is our role? Our role is to throw ourselves into the fire of the consuming God and the consuming fire. Um, think about what Matthew 21, 44 says. 
And he who falls on this stone, the stone of God, will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. What is our role in the kingdom of God? It is complete surrender to him. Maybe you're thinking about this, thinking this is a severe God who will upset the entire world someday. He'll destroy those who, um, who are sinful, which is all of us. So bad news. Maybe you're kind of thinking about sh- shying away. But it's like that baby we talked about. Maybe me. <laughs> Either we could be like a baby that would refuse the father altogether. I don't know if I like who you are. I'm not sure I trust you. Uh, I'm not sure I like the way you do things, but God is a consuming fire. This is his kingdom. He will shake the heavens and earth someday. Do we have any choice but to surrender to him? But if that still kind of fears you with dread, think about this for a little bit. If God is that consuming fire, if he is going to shake the heavens and the earth, and yet he is speaking to all of us and telling us, you may surrender to my side and I will be with you. What must that say about his mercy and his goodness? Our God is a consuming fire, but he is good. And he loves us. So you could be like that baby that says, no way, I don't know you, you're a stranger. You could be like one of the babies that might reluctantly go, but still try to do it their own way. Maybe, you know, they're not going to affect whether the father stands or not, but they might fumble. Or you could be like a baby that gives in complete surrender to the father, able to take part in his plan. Let's take this to a more serious level because... After all, that's just a picture of my dad and me and just a little story about a baby and um, what silly things my dad could do. What does it look like in real life to take on that role of surrender to God, the consuming fire? What does that look like? It looks very much like this. Imagine a scenario that you're dealing with in everyday life. Maybe something you're dreading. Maybe not. Maybe you're thinking of something happy, but I don't know. It seems a little bit more difficult to me to imagine that if God requires something difficult of me in the face of something I dread, it takes a little bit more courage to trust him in that maybe, at least on the outset. So maybe you would imagine something like that, something that you would dread. Maybe it'd be difficult and painful, like a relationship thing, a conflict. Maybe it's something beyond your human capability. Boy, I just do not know how to write this paper. Or I'm not sure how to reach out to my family member. Maybe it's something you just don't want to do. Imagine that. What is our role of surrender like? It's like this. It's going straight to the Father, the God of the universe, and it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that you automatically want to do whatever he has for you. It might even mean you telling him, ah, I don't like this. Could you please take it away from me? This is difficult. This is terrible. But it does mean going straight to the Father. And it does mean doing whatever it is he asks of you because he is good and he is king. How do I know that this is what surrender looks like in real life? Because that is what Jesus modeled for us at Gethsemane when he had to do something. 
that was beyond his human capability. If Jesus' role in the kingdom of God was complete surrender to his Father's design, what must my role be in the kingdom? Have we given of ourselves as a sacrifice to the consuming fire? In other words, have we surrendered to him as king? It might be for the first time ever. Even in a Bible college, we could be like the people, the Israelites that Haggai talked to. We have a lot of things we can think about that don't have anything to do with God. They might distract us. Or we might have hurts in our hearts like the people of Israel. That was a painful time. They had legitimate reasons to um, kind of want to nurse their own souls. Whatever is your reason, have you at least the first time given yourself and surrender to the God of the universe, the consuming fire, or have you done that? And do you need to think about continuing to do that? I know I do. Often, many times a minute, <laughs> many times an hour, many times a day. Our God is a consuming fire, yet he has invited us to have a role, a role of surrender in his unshakable kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the ladies in this room who are friends and faces I love to see. And if I love them, and I'm not very good, <laughs> if I love them, you love them so much more. And you say that you're waiting to make that unshakable kingdom permanent because you love each of us and people outside this room too. And you want us to have time to come to know you. What a gracious thing. Would you let us see that as it is? Would you teach us in each of our regular life situations, um, going from here to lunch and talking with friends and living with roommates or husbands or whatever the case may be, would you teach us what it's like to surrender to you? To you be glory. In Jesus' name, amen.